When we place our faith in Jesus, things change. Things change spiritually when we die to that power of sin and we're resurrected back to life. Things change behaviorally when we start to act differently and speak differently and do different things. And when we place our faith in Jesus, things change relationally. The people we used to spend time with, we often start spending less time with, and we begin to fellowship and spend time with a body of Christians and believers, usually in a church. Those are the changes that take place often when we make that step of placing our faith in Jesus Christ. But there also are changes that take place in our lives as we grow in our spiritual life, as we grow in our faith, as our relationship with God strengthens and becomes deeper and more intimate. Things change at those times too. The language we use continues to change. How we handle our emotions or disappointment or anger hopefully improves. The manner in which we spend our money or the things that we spend our money on usually changes as we grow spiritually. What we spend our time on usually gets redirected, whether it's watching TV a lot or spending lots of time on social media. Usually we'll start to dedicate that time to God's priorities and what God wants us to do. Even the way in which we use substances like alcohol or drugs might change as we, we grow in our faith and we grow in our relationship that we have with Jesus. See, as we place our faith in Jesus Christ and we step away from certain behaviors or specific people, we need to ask, what does that look like for us? Whether at that moment of conversion or in that process as we grow. And we need to ask ourselves, is it hard to separate ourselves from some of those people that we used to maybe spend time with or interact with a lot that have a lifestyle that's contrary to our new lifestyle, following God and following his priorities? We have to ask ourselves, how will we still maintain those relationships with people that no longer do the things we once did? Or should we even continue a relationship with them? We need to ask, how are those people going to treat us because of our new faith in Christ or our growing relationship with him? How might those people treat us differently because of the changes that are going on in our lives as believers? We've seen the past two weeks as we've been going through 1 Peter. Peter's talking about suffering. Specifically, he told us that suffering sometimes happens to us even when we do good things. He's also taught us that suffering requires that we prepare for it in advance, that we proclaim Christ's name in the midst of suffering, and that we should expect ultimate vindication from that suffering in the future. But today in these six verses from 1 Peter that we're going to look at, Peter continues these thoughts on suffering and elaborations on suffering for Christians, and he tells us essentially this, that when we walk away from our old life and we begin walking with God, we will experience suffering and persecution from the people that we used to walk with, is what he's telling them. So we're going to look and see here in these verses at the attitude we should have approaching this suffering, the antagonism that we will receive from those people that we used to live a, a non-godly lifestyle with, and then he's going to give us some positive anticipation for us to look forward to. 
And I think he says these things because one of the temptations we might have as, as believers, whether we first become a Christian or we've been walking with God for a while, one of our temptations we have when we encounter suffering is that it's easy or sometimes tempting for us to slip back into those old bad habits, those old bad behaviors. We might look to those things to satisfy us or to ease our suffering when we're in the midst of suffering. But Peter is trying to prepare them for what that might look like. And he describes the attitude that we should have as we approach suffering in verses 1 and 2 of 1 Peter chapter 4. He writes, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Now in verse 1, he's telling us to arm ourselves for suffering. And he, he starts with that word, therefore, which is a, a conjunction helping us apply some of those principles of the previous two paragraphs that he's been explaining on suffering. And he gives us a reminder of Christ's example here in verse 1. He says, Christ has suffered in the flesh. That phrase describes Christ's physical suffering, his physical death, his physical dying that he experienced while on earth. And then Peter gives us an exhortation here. He says, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Now, as we've been going through the book of 1 Peter, I've mentioned before that almost every paragraph of 1 Peter starts with a command. Every paragraph except for two. And this is the command in this paragraph. Arm yourselves also with the same purpose that Christ had. And when he says arm yourselves, it's a similar idea to what Paul has said, talking about putting on the spiritual armor of God, or it refers to soldiers putting on armor, getting ready for battle. And he tells us that we should get ready, not physically for battle, but mentally. He says with the same purpose, or I like the NIV or the New Living Translation, it says arm yourselves with the same attitude that Christ had. That word for attitude is a compound Greek word. It's the word in and the word mind put together. So literally, in our mind, we should arm ourselves with the same attitude that Christ had. And this means that we should have anticipation for suffering. If there's anybody that had more anticipation and preparation for suffering, it was Peter. Because Jesus, in John chapter 20, told Peter about this suffering that Peter would experience in the future. In John chapter 21, verses 18 and 19, Jesus tells Peter, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wish. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you to where you do not wish to go. Then John writes, this, now this he said, signifying what kind of death Peter would experience to glorify God. Peter was given a, a prediction of his own suffering and death by Jesus. And he's trying to give these believers that he's writing to that same prediction and preparation for their suffering. So in verse 1, he gives Christ's example. He gives 
an exhortation, and then he describes something for us. He says, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That's where Peter pivots a little bit. He's talking about us. When we have that same attitude as Christ and we prepare to suffer in the flesh, Peter writes, he has ceased from sin. Now there are some difficult verses and parts from, uh, from 1 Peter, and a couple of you are looking at me with a sideways smile, wondering what are we going to talk about on this little phrase. 1 Peter is a tough book. There's some tough phrases in here, and this is one of them. What does it mean to cease from sin? How do we cease from sin? A couple of views of that phrase is, one. some people say it means sinless perfection, like we reach this state in our spiritual life where we no longer sin. That doesn't seem likely. Some people say this is death, like we only cease from sin when we physically die. That's another position. But I think what Peter is saying as we continue reading through here, that suffering removes the power of sin in our lives. That when we experience suffering, when we have the same attitude about suffering that Christ has, some of those pagan, Gentile, drinking, sinful activities that we used to be pulled into no longer have that same appeal when we go through suffering like Christ did. That's what I think Peter is telling them here, and I think that'll become more clear as we go through. So Peter tells them, arm yourselves for suffering in verse 1, and then abandon your past sin in verse 2. Peter says, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God, he writes there. This is Verse 2 is an explanation of that last phrase of verse 1. What does it mean to cease from sin? What does that look like? He explains that for us in verse 2. And when Peter talks about flesh here, as he uses that phrase again and again, that word flesh, it's good to remember some authors use terms differently. They use metaphors and images differently than other authors. For example, when you read Paul, he talks about flesh. That word flesh, he usually uses as a picture of the sinful inclination, that sinful desire we all have. But Peter, when he talks about flesh, he seems to be talking about the physical body that we are experiencing, that same physical body that Jesus was crucified in, that same physical body that we experience life on earth in, is the way Peter's using flesh. And he describes how these people have different priorities he says, they no longer have the lusts of men. And he'll describe what those lusts look like and that past behavior of these people, what their life looked like before they came to believe in Jesus. See, what Peter's saying to these people in these first two verses, I'm going to give us three suffering statements as we go through these three sections of these six verses. The first one is that suffering removes the power of sin in our lives. Suffering removes the power of sin in our lives. One study Bible, the New American Standard Study Bible, puts it like this. It says, such suffering enables one to straighten out his priorities. Sinful desires and practices that once seemed important now seem insignificant when one's life is in jeopardy. Serious suffering for Christ advances the progress of sanctification. 
When Peter talks about ceasing from sin in verse 1, Greek grammarians call that an ablative genitive or a genitive of separation, meaning it's a phrase that describes things that physically or metaphorically separate from one another. It's a very rare form of the genitive, but it's used by Peter a few verses earlier where he talks about that physical water baptism we experience is the separating of dirt from the body, the same idea. And that's what Peter is saying here, that when we experience suffering, sin ceases to be part of our lives. It separates us. It's like when someone calls you over and over again and you don't want to hear from them anymore and you block their number on your phone. You're ceasing them or separating them from being a part of your lives. See, suffering has a way of, of stealing us. Not steal as in S-T-E-A-L, but steal as in S-T-E-E-L. That word can be a noun, an adjective, but it can be used as a verb that we don't use very much in our language. Meaning to fill with resolution or determination. Suffering steals us to God and His priorities and focuses us. Those past sinful habits of maybe foul language or uncontrollable anger, carelessly spending money, gluttony, alcohol, drug use, binge watching TV, those things don't have the same appeal in our lives when we experience suffering because of our faith in Christ. And I think that's why we often see the Christian church often flourishes in countries in which it is persecuted. Have you ever noticed that? It's because believers there are true believers. They are committed and steeled and focused and strong in their faith. And suffering also, it steals you and me. It makes us steadfast in our faith and it strengthens our faith and it grounds our faith in Jesus. Now our faith that we have in Jesus and that life that we live is often seen by others, even if we don't describe it to them. And Peter moves on to discuss what is that going to look like. If we were a pagan person enjoying debauchery and drinking, and uh, the translation we heard from described orgies, if we leave all of that, how are those people going to respond to us? And that's where Peter in verses 3 through 5 describes the antagonism that these people experienced. He says, for the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all of this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Now in these three verses, in verse 3, Peter describes their past time that they had been living in. He describes their past behavior, and he describes it as a past behavior. Right? The time already passed, meaning they have moved on from this behavior. They're now believers following Jesus. And he describes their practices sensuality, lusts, carousing, drinking parties, things like that. 
I don't think we need to spend too much time on this. We get an idea of what this looks like in our culture. Some of you might think that sounds like my neighbor sometimes on Friday night. I don't know what they got going on over there. But a few thoughts about this list that he gives. All those nouns are in the plural form, which suggests that these were kind of an ongoing, regular activity as part of their lives. Every Friday night or Saturday night, this is what they did. And also those nouns all together kind of give us a picture of a, a wild and frenzied drinking party that they would participate in. But there are some persecutors against these believers that Peter is writing to. Since they have left that lifestyle, we read about them in verses 4 and 5, these persecutors. John Owen, the Puritan, says, Sin in the believer is a burden which afflicts him rather than a pleasure that delights him. When we place our faith in Jesus and we experience a relationship with him, sin doesn't really have that same pull or desire in our lives. But other people still enjoy those same sinful practices and activities. And those people that still have those sinful practices and activities persecute us and slander us, as Peter describes in verse 4. He says, in all this, he's referring back to these believers that have left that lifestyle, that have the same attitude as Christ. He says, in all this, those people, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. These people, they seem to be resentful that these believers have left them. They're offended by the departure of that lifestyle. And when it talks about their excess of dissipation, that has the idea of they think of nothing about, they think about nothing but evil things. It says they malign believers, faithful people doing good. It's that word vilify or blaspheme. They're not just talking badly about the believers, but they're talking badly about the God that has led them to this new lifestyle. Yet in verse 5, Peter says that's what they do, but in verse 5, their behavior, but their behavior is going to have this result. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. No one will escape their works or their words that they do against these Christians. That word for give account there literally has the meaning of pay back. These people are, are racking up credit card charges that they'll never be able to pay off to God when it's time for them to answer for what they're doing. And it doesn't matter here whether they are alive when Jesus comes back to judge them or if they're dead. He says Jesus is going to judge the living and the dead there. It doesn't matter when they're, where their physical state is. At the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20, the unbelievers, every single unbeliever will stand before God and have to give an answer for what he or she did or how he or she acted. And Peter's telling them, basically, God will condemn them, so don't give in to them. So suffering, it removes the power of sin. And a second statement on suffering is suffering is a result from our departure from sin. Suffering is a result from our departure from sin. 
which almost seems silly to say because you think if someone was engaged in this lifestyle and they leave, people would praise them and encourage them. But that's not the case. Instead, these people seem to be persecuting the Christians and, and causing them suffering because they've left that lifestyle. We know that and how gangs work today, that you get into a city gang and then once you're in, you pretty much can't get out, right? If someone wants to get a good job and be a good husband and father and, and leave that illegal lifestyle, they almost cannot leave. Now, I don't have any scripture to support this, but I, I wonder why would someone persecute someone else for doing good, right? Why would someone involved in sin and entrenched in sin in this list, why would they persecute and cause suffering someone that's left that lifestyle? Again, I don't have any scripture to support this one, but I wonder if someone else that is doing good, I wonder if there's a part of the sinful person's heart that knows deep, deep down maybe somehow what they're doing is wrong. And when a Christian leaves and, and lives in the light, maybe their light sheds a shadow on the other person's darkness, right? Does, does their light reveal the other person's darkness? I don't know if that's it. Maybe there's a, a mom or a dad or a family member that had told them what they're doing is wrong. And when this Christian leaves, it's exposing that wrong and that good mentor that had tried to steer them comes back. Maybe that's why. I'm not sure. But we do know that when people change because of their faith in Jesus, when their life improves and gets better, they experience suffering. It's almost as if sin goes out of their lives, but suffering now comes in. And with that said, Peter gives these people something positive to look forward to. He gives them some anticipation as they're in the midst of this suffering, suffering in verse 6. He writes, for the, gospel, for, for the gospel has for this purpose been preached, even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. Now, 1 Peter is a hard book. It gives us some, some hard things to apply, talking about suffering. It's also a hard book because there's some things Peter says when you first read it, you kind of wonder, what is he describing here? Or who is he talking about? And this is, again, one of those verses. When he describes how the gospel has been preached to those who are dead, those who are dead have been interpreted in a few different ways. And sometimes as you read your Bible on your own and you kind of struggle to figure out what it's describing, it's helpful sometimes just to lay, lay out the different views so you can interact with them. Or if you have a person that asks you a tough question and you're not sure, sometimes it's helpful just to explain the different views and talk through them. And there are three different views on who these dead are that Peter is describing in verse 6. One view is that these are deceased unbelievers that Christ preaches a second chance of salvation to. That these are people that rejected the gospel on the earth, they're now dead, but Jesus preaches a second invitation for them to be saved. Now, that's probably not a correct view. William Barclay has popularized that view for a couple of reasons. We know that when you're on... The, your looks at me remind, tell me this, this isn't going to fly. 
It's kind of like our men's Bible study. Sometimes I'll explain one of these views and they're looking at me sideways. But that's a view that some people have taken. But that doesn't make sense that someone would get a second chance at salvation after death because Hebrews specifically tells us we get one opportunity to place our faith in Jesus. And that's why all we are alive. Hebrews 9.27. It also doesn't really make sense with Peter's flow of thought through the book because he's talking about place your faith in Jesus, be ready for suffering. Why would we do any of that if we could just confess Jesus when we're dead? It seems like you wouldn't say all of those things. So sometimes you lay out the views and you kind of realize this is the best view in light of the other options, but that is an option. A second view is that these are deceased unbelievers that Christ proclaims his victory over that are in Hades. So people that rejected the gospel while on earth, their spirits are in Hades awaiting final judgment. And Jesus goes there and he proclaims his victory over them and his victory over death. That is a possible view. But the view I take is the third view, that these are deceased Christians that have experienced persecution because of their faith. These are deceased Christians that have experienced persecution and suffering because of their faith. And I'll give you four reasons that that seems the fit. It seems best on the context here that Peter is trying to prepare them for, for suffering that they're going through in the flesh, right? If Jesus went to Hades and proclaimed victory over the, the spirits in Hades that were non-believers, that's a little farther away. That's in the previous paragraph previous chapter. Jesus uh, describing here persecution for Christians that have died seems to fit the context of verses 1 and 6. It also matches the word usage. If you have the NIV or the New American Standard Bible like I'm going to talk about, in chapter 3 verse 19 it says Jesus went and made a proclamation to the spirits now in prison. But here in chapter 4 verse 6 it says Jesus preached to spirits. Proclamation and preached are two different English words, and they're translations of two different Greek words. And I think that comes through well in those two translations. A proclamation is something that people would read aloud or state, but preaching is something that Greek word gets used usually when there's an offer or an invitation for salvation. So it seems to be that something different is occurring in those two places. And specifically here, the gospel was preached to these people while they were alive on the earth and they accepted it. And then they experienced suffering and persecution as a result of their faith. A third reason that these describe or this describes deceased Christians that have experienced persecution is it seems to make sense with how Peter started in verse 1 of chapter 4. That old adage of tell them what you're going to tell them, you tell them, and then you tell them what you told them. That interpretation seems to match these six verses in this paragraph well. He seems to be wrapping up with the same thing he said in verse 1 that he elaborated on in verses 2 through 5. And he says the same thing again in verse 6. Also, his description of flesh seems to match that interpretation. That these are Christians that were alive on the earth. They heard the gospel. 
in the flesh, physically, as Peter uses flesh. They accept the gospel, they experience persecution and maybe even martyrdom and death. And now they are alive in the spirit. That matches that same use of flesh that Peter seems to, to use to describe someone that's alive on the earth. So now that I've confused all of us, let me reread verse 6, because it really proclaims our victory through suffering because of our faith in Jesus. Verse 6 reads, For the gospel for this purpose has been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. Essentially, what Peter is saying in this verse is that despite suffering and eventual physical death, believers still experience life in the Spirit according to God's will. That there essentially is no death for a believer in Jesus Christ, a physical death in the flesh, but they still live in the Spirit according to God's will. Like Jesus, they might be punished physically and die, but they will be like Jesus, resurrected back to eternal spiritual life, just like God the Father brought Jesus back to life. So our suffering statements as we read these six verses, suffering removes the power of sin, suffering is a result of our departure from sin, and third, suffering is temporarily part of the sin of this world. The last earthly effect of sin that we experience as physical death. Once we die, that's the last sin effect in our lives. And it didn't take long in the New Testament for suffering to start coming for believers and Christians. In chapter 1 of Acts, Acts is that book that tells us the history of the, the early church once Jesus leaves. Jesus goes to heaven in chapter 1 of Acts. Chapter 2 of Acts, the Holy Spirit comes and, and the church as we know it is established there. Just a couple chapters later in chapter 7, a guy named Stephen is stoned. The first martyr only took, what, five chapters for persecution to begin. One guy named... Eklard Schnabel did an extensive study of persecution and suffering in the New Testament, and he found 27 different examples in the New Testament of persecution of Christians that happened over a span of 65 different years in about 10 different locations, Judea, Samaria, Nebatia, Rome, Galatia, Macedonia, Achaia, Asia Minor, he goes through all of those different places. And it's interesting how suffering would come to Christians at that time because in the Roman Empire, they had a, a philosophy, you kind of get as many gods as you can. Gods are good, gods help us, we appease these gods, and oh, that's a new god, we don't have that one. Let's grab that one. We want all these new gods, and here comes this guy named Jesus, a new god according to their standard, yet these group of Christians get persecuted and they suffer for their faith and that's important for us to consider that we're going to have suffering as part of our faith in Jesus Tim Keller in his book titled walking with God through pain and suffering he says this and I'm gonna I'm paraphrasing what he says he says suffering in America is traumatic because we pursue pleasure and personal freedom 
which makes sense for us as Americans. Think about our, our lifestyle or the, the ads we see or the things we're told to buy. Suffering in America is traumatic because our pursuit is of pleasure and personal freedom. And that's true. That's why we have a dishwasher, because we don't want to wash dishes, right? Those are great things. I do most of the dishes in our house, so I'm not complaining. That's why we have five different streaming services we can watch in the living room, in our bedroom, or on our phone. We want to watch what we want to watch when we want. It's why we have a, an air conditioner here, because we don't want to sweat in the summertime. Those are the things that we, we pursue pleasure and we pursue personal freedom. And, and suffering is, is hard for us as Americans because we get pleasure and personal freedom in so many other parts of our lives. But Peter's teaching us is that suffering is a temporary part of the sin of this world that we need to be ready for. One quote from Tim Keller and we'll be done for this morning. In that same book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, he says this, Often the unstated assumption of many people is that God's job is to create a world in which things benefit us. Now think about that and how that comes into our lives as American Christians. Often the unstated assumption of many people, he's talking to Christians here, it's a Christian book, is that God's job is to create a world in which things benefit us. But that's not what we see in Scripture. It's not what Peter is telling us. Peter's telling us suffering, if anything, it helps remove that power of sin. Suffering is a result of our departure from sin. And suffering is temporarily part of the sin of this world. And that when we experience suffering... Suffering removes sin's power in our lives, and it steals us to God's purpose in our lives. Let's pray. God, help us to be a church that knows how to suffer and how to suffer well. That when we experience bad times, we don't abandon you or we don't leave you. I pray that you'll help us as a church to mold our mindset and to mold our, our worldview as Christians, that following you doesn't mean things will always be simple and easy and, and sunny. Sometimes, as we're learning from Peter, we might even experience suffering and persecution because of the good things we do, because of the way we follow you in our families and, and how they might reject us because of our faith. Maybe with our friends because we don't go with them or walk with them or do the things they used to do. Or even in our workplace because we don't participate in some of the, the questionable things our coworkers do or, or want us to participate with them. I pray, Lord, you would help us to have a mind that focuses on you in suffering, that relies on you in suffering, and that looks to you with a hope and an expectation that you will take us through the suffering that you allow us to go through. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'll invite you to stand, if you're able to stand, for a benediction, and we'll be dismissed.
Let us go in peace and in praise. Let us praise the Lord. As his creation, let us praise the Lord just as his heavens, sun, moon, stars, and his angels pray him. Let us praise the Lord. Amen.